Today on Never Was a Gamer. Ring, ring, it's your codec. I hope you weren't in the middle of anything. Hello and welcome to Never Was a Gamer, the show where a late-blooming gamer makes up for lost time discovering everyone else's formative games. I'm Michelle, and with me is our Colonel Roy Campbell, but without all the betrayal, Dimitri. Even without the betrayal part, I still think that's kind of an egg. Uh, it was. Uh, thank you for joining us. We're really happy you're here. Uh, if this is your first time listening, Dimitri's loved games his whole life, and I played them a bit as a really little kid, but then I didn't pick them up again until I was an adult. So now we're both fans, but I missed like 15 to 20 years of classics. And in this podcast, we're going to talk about some of those landmark games, dig into the history, and explore what it's like to play them for the first time today. Uh, There's more discussion about all of that stuff in episode zero, so check that out if you're interested. Yes, but today we're going to do a deep dive into one of these classic games, a game that repeatedly appears on most influential or greatest games of all times list, a game that has birthed an army of Kojima fanboy genome soldiers, <laughs> Metal Gear Solid. And uh, as I understand it, Michelle's been keeping tabs on her her best friend Hideo Kojima. Yep, we need a Kojima update on what's been going on. So these are things that have happened in between when Michelle started playing Metal Gear Solid and today that we're recording. And just for some context, <laughs> to let you know kind of how far in advance we're recording this actually... Um, Death Stranding reviews have been released, but the game has not. So we're in this nice little sweet spot, and Kojima has been uh, all over kind of the Twitter sphere and the promotional sphere. Yeah, he's been doing the most. So he released this Twitter treatise on what a Kojima game means, uh, which is a question that no one had. And I just want to read the actual words. A Hideo Kojima game means the declaration of me doing concept, produce, original story, script, setting, Game design, casting, dealing, directing, difficulty adjustments, promoting, visual design, editing, supervising the merch. And like, (laughs) so no one else worked on it. That's what I'm to understand. (laughs) It means that he did everything personally. Um, Shout outs to dealing also. I don't (laughs) know what that is. Uh, Big shout outs to supervising the merch because I do believe he did that. Um, And I think the thing that has made me feel most like I'm living in a bizarro alternative dimension that can't be real is he tweeted out this little picture of these like four sad fold out chairs at these like bare desks with a with a caption that was like, Kojima production started with just four people at these sad desks. Like those aren't the words, but and it's like you no, you he was already Kojima by the time he was leaving Konami. He may have like maybe brought four people with him initially, but like he's it, like don't do this startup thing where it's like, uh, we started in my basement. Like he was already probably moderately rich and with a te- like yes, Kojima production started with just four people. Four people and one vision. My vision, <laughs> Kojima's vision, to give the people the game they always wanted. Okay. That Konami, our cruel oppressors, really? prevented us. <laughs> it's like, it's so, so bizarre. But, 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 the thing is, <laughs> we both are going to play Death Stranding. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm so, I've, I haven't been this excited for it. So we're about a week um, before release. And nothing made me more excited about this game than seeing it get like a 6.8 from IGN. Right. Like right. it's beginning 10s, it's beginning 6s, it's beginning 3s. Three. Three. That makes me so excited. Yeah, it's like he's rules. actually 
he has an idea. There's ideas here. Yeah. They're not playing it safe. It's upsetting some people, apparently. <laughs> I heard some people, I don't, I tried to avoid a lot of spoilers, mm-hmm. um, but some people I hear are saying it's boring. Great. Great. I, I, yeah, I'm very excited for this game. And, uh, well, no more soon. Yeah. So, I mean, take all this with a grain of salt, I guess. I guess the other big thing that he's said is that Kojima Productions will start making movies soon, which if you've played Metal Gear Solid in the last month like I have, is the least surprising thing <laughs> in the universe. It's like, when wasn't he making movies? Right. I think like, is- this game is obsessed with movies, like from the way it sets up some of its own sequences to like mm-hmm. the motivation of literally every character you meet in the first half, like... They all tell you that they do what they do because they loved, like, military movies, basically, when they were growing up. And anime, up. in the case and, of Otacon, right? Japan, Japanimation, is that <laughs> yeah. what it's called? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Kojima uh, on his own Twitter says that he's his body is 70% movies. Yeah. And I think it shows in his in his characters. Yeah. Um, But we did talk about this last time, right? And we talked about it with Super Metroid, that people called Super Metroid a cinematic game. Mm-hmm. But really, this is, this is the game that... That um, speaks to kind of cinematic game in, in the way we're more accustomed, where it, it very much looks like a movie. Mm-hmm. And, Although not necessarily the way I play it. <laughs> yeah, we'll get into that. <laughs> um, but I do remember, so I, we were talking about that scene that a lot of the reviews and previews picked out as being um, really different for the time and really affecting, which was the scene with the DARPA chief. Yeah. And even you commented on that yeah. when you were playing. I remember that really clearly. It just all of a sudden you have all these really unusual camera like uh, it's hard to describe this honestly without using the word cinematic it's that whole cutscene is shot very much like a spy movie or like an action movie where you have these interesting pans and then like a cross cut to the cell beside the cell that you're in and then shots and good sound editing of like the soldier patrolling outside like it just is it's so familiar from film that it really does jump out at you. Like, I'm surprised how much that translated. Yeah, and you commented that it actually felt more like watching a movie than most current games that you play. Uh, yeah, Even totally. ones that try to ape cinema in similar ways. Totally, yep. But yeah, as Michelle mentioned, the the kind of cinematic elements in a lot of ways stopped when the cutscenes stopped. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this, I mean, this is, this is kind of a tension in games generally, especially ones that have these cinematic aspirations, right? The tension between... The cinema, the kind of the the images and the action sequences that the 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 people making the game might be envisioning, mm-hmm. and then either like the technological ability of the system mm-hmm. or the competencies of the player. No comment on which one this would know was the <laughs> it result was, of. Right, in, in it was this a case, combo. Yeah, in this case, right, it was a combo of both. I I mean, we can call out that um, the the fist fight scene with um, yeah with Liquid Snake where. So frustrating. And you're on Metal Gear and there's kind of fire around you. and you You've already this- beat Rex. Like you've just had like what mm-hmm. should be by all logic, the the pinnacle fight of the game. And you have, I mean, again, this image and this sequence that's taken directly out of 80s action movies yeah. with kind of these shirtless, mulleted, <laughs> you know, like tough, solid men yep. having having a fist fight, like right out of, right, the kind of Mel Gibson, Gary right. Busey at the end of Lethal Weapon. But- the technology and like the fighting system in place is just so, so rough. rudimentary <laughs> that you're just doing these little jabs and this kick and it's just kind of like, poo, poo, poo. <laughs> yeah. And right, so you know what it's going for and your imagination might be doing some of that work, but what you're looking at, um, it really just kind of falls short of, I think, those cinematic aspirations. Yep, I think so. Slows the momentum right down on that. <laughs> and then on the other hand, you have moments where 
the player, in this case, um, Michelle, <laughs> was playing in a way that rubbed right against, I think, what that image was of what should have been happening. Um, I mean, the one that really stood out to me is there's that scene <laughs> when the hind is shooting and you're supposed to rappel down the wall with the rope. Yeah. And I mean, we it's in some of the trailers. On, I on think that I demo commented disc. on it when we watched the trailer initially. I was like, oh, I get to rappel down a wall. Yeah, and it looks so cool. And then the way Michelle was doing, she kind of like <laughs> kicked back and then like yeah. right into the wall and then <laughs> right in the wall you know what? and then hit by the steam i didn't fully register that the steam from the vents <laughs> would hurt me because also like steam often doesn't hurt <laughs> like in real life like that could it just be steam such... does hurt in real life i guess mist doesn't whatever bottom line i steam i can see your skin i up. concede it was a clumsy rappel down. That was not the most graceful moment it was, of my playthrough. Uh, really, and we'll again, this will be a running theme that really <laughs> this Michelle's experience of this game, it was like a slapstick adventure. <laughs> um, and again, like the music is tense during these stealth sequences. And then Michelle just like jumps out and gets spotted. There's the the moment when she's trying to trick the guy. So it's after the <laughs> oh, no. electrocution sequence. Yeah, you're in. You're being held in the cell, and you're in the cell, and yeah. Otto comes and slips you the ketchup. Yeah, and, and the handkerchief, and the handkerchief, and you're gonna do. You know, you you plot to pretend that you've you've been wounded, and you lay on the ground in the ketchup, and then the guard comes in, <laughs> and you're valiantly gonna take out the guard and escape. Easy Except peasy. When Michelle does it, the guard comes in. She jumps up, starts kind of fumbling around. I was trying to grab him, flips him, but he gets back up, and then he runs back out the cell and shuts the door, and she's stuck in it. <laughs> And it's like, so much for your movie game, Kojima, Michelle wrote well, it. And then I tried to lay back down because I was hoping <laughs> yeah, he's... Just I was lay hoping... back <laughs> down in the ketchup. Just take two. I was hoping his AI would be badly coded enough because of the era <laughs> that he would just like reset, like, you know, just go back to his resting state and then be like, oh, God, no, what's that? And we could try again. Yeah, he did not fall for it. He did not fall for it. <laughs> but really, this, and I think this, you'll see this as you play more recent games, that this is something that a lot of games have tried to account for, right? The the ineptitudes of the player. All right. So you get, so you get into something like Uncharted, which um, maybe we'll play one day. Sure. Where there are these dramatic moments, but you as the player can't really mess them up. And, it, and the way the game works is to make you think, for example, that you can miss a jump, mm, but you really can't. Okay. And so it, it really does kind of, have all of these things running in the background that as a player, you're not, you're not really meant to see happening. Right. So that you feel like you're actually acting out these cinematic moments when really the game is doing so much heavy lifting for you. Right. Um, this game, zero heavy lifting. Yeah, no, no. Uh anyway, we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves. Um, we're going to start diving deep into this game. And just as a warning off the top, there is so much to talk about with yeah. this game. It's pretty overwhelming. And so this isn't going to be a plot deep dive or a beat by beat account. Um, it's going to be a bit more experiential. So if you're looking for something about kind of people talking about, you know, the step by step through the plot, um, there are so many other podcasts that do that really well. So you can find it there. I think we're going to take a more thematic approach mm -hmm. and uh, and one just kind of grounded in Michelle's experience with with the game, because otherwise there's just there's so much. It'll be four hours. <laughs> so maybe we can just start with your your overall your overall thoughts on the game. Um We've been we've been kind of laughing, um, poking fun at your playthrough, poking fun at some of the things the game does. But overall, did you come away understanding um, a bit more about why this game is held in such high regard? So yes, absolutely. Um, with an asterisk, with a but. Mm. So 
first of all, I I want to put I want to say there's so much to like about this game. This game is ambitious. It's has just a wealth of unique and memorable boss fights that are more fun and engaging than they are frustrating, which is not a small feat. I typically don't like boss fights. This thing has some of the best boss fights. So good. Um, it has a really strong intensity and focus. Like, I I get it. But also, I, I want to say that I think I had more of an age or system barrier with this game than I really wanted to. Mm. Um, some of, specifically with the controls, a lot of the uh, 3D navigation uh, with the camera work was just so frustrating. And there were points that I fully did not enjoy. Um, apart from my still not being sure about Kojima, like the kojima just putting that to the side for a second. There were so many cases where like navigation was weird and frustrating because it, the game would like turn my camera angle around a corner mm. and suddenly the the button I'd been holding to move in one direction turns me around in a different direction or like pops me out of the sort of cover that I'm in. So there... <laughs> Not seamless, mm -hmm. not seamless. Also, there were definitely times when the camera was not helpful. <laughs> I mean, there is one sequence where you run up a spiral staircase and you have guys kind of chasing you from both sides. I found that so frustrating because it keeps rotating, which changes which direction you're running. And you just, you don't have a good line of sight. I got, like, it just was very frustrating. But I think like, the best, the best example of this, it would drive me nuts when there were cases where guys could clearly see me and were firing at me, but I just like couldn't see them. Like, how am I supposed to fight you? Like, you're off screen. And so, yeah, there's that moment when you're on your way to fight the Hindi, the helicopter, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you're running and you're getting shot, but the camera angle is such that you can't see ahead of you. Yeah. Like the three guys who are shooting you. Yeah. It's like, so it it's kind of top down-ish and they're, they're like all at the other end of like a long walkway, right? And so you're sort of just firing like at random angles where you kind of think that the bullets that are killing you are coming from. And the game is just like, no, too bad. Like just figured out. And yeah. then as soon as you take them down and you take like two steps further along that platform, the camera like pans down and lets you see exactly the angle that you would have needed to be able to shoot them. Like, why? Why would you do that? That's not fun. <laughs> That's not a good time. That's so frustrating. So in the last, so last time you played Super Metroid, and when you think about something like Super Metroid, that is still in very, very much kind of perhaps the pinnacle of 2D Mm -hmm. metroidvania exploration games right and it still kind of looks gorgeous mm -hmm. it plays pretty well yep and then the problem here is that you're playing metal gear solid from 1998 which is kind of this ugly teenager time for 3d action games okay um where they're coming to their own when they're trying to figure out how to actually make a 3d action game and in this case how to make a cinematic 3d action game and this game has been so influential and has influenced so much of what you play now that i think Maybe part of the issue is that you've seen all of the things that this game mm. um, innovated or originated just kind of done better. Like refined to a... Yeah. yeah. I mean, even future Metal Gear Solid games um, refine a lot of these ideas. And so you really, it, and it's hard to kind of go back and, and see them kind of in their infancy like this when they're just trying to still figure out how it's all going to work. That makes sense. And dealing with um, technological limitations as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one thing I also noticed with your playthrough in particular... And maybe again, this this has to do with when you start to get into games. Is that there's there's both kind of a lot of tutorialization. <laughs> <laughs> there's like 
they call you on the codec to say, press A to climb the ladder. And it's like, okay, I, yeah, thank you. <laughs> but, Thanks. <laughs> but at the same time, there's really not a lot. And so one thing I noticed with you is that you get this huge arsenal of weapons pretty much up front. <laughs> but in modern games, for example, you might start with nothing and then get a pistol. And then there'll be a sequence where you have to learn how to use the pistol. And then you'll get a chaff grenade and you won't be able to progress until you use the chaff grenade. Mm -hmm. And then you'll get... Um, right, another weapon or another type of grenade. and But the game will kind of force you into a situation where you see how all of these things work. Whereas in this game, you kind of got an arsenal at the beginning and you mm -hmm. kind of had to figure out what works in what situations. And it took you a while to do that. You were never really, uh, until the end, not really making use of your whole arsenal. Yeah, it's, it's actually funny because when you get to the first boss in this game, which is Revolver Ocelot, that fight is like, like, if you're doing this halfway competently, you basically haven't used your gun yet at that point. Mm. And then this first boss fight throws you into a pistol duel with who's supposed to be a master duelist. So all of a sudden, the game really wants you to be figuring out how to get good at that pistol really fast. But I think, honestly, this is... I think some of this is related to a hangover from my RPG formative years, which is that I tend to be a resource hoarder. Mm -hmm. Like, if I have special ammo... I am saving that. Like, that's not coming out for just anybody. Like, anything that I feel is so powerful that I might have constrained access to refills of it, I'm not using just because it would be easier than fighting my way through with a pistol. I'll make do with the pistol and sit on my, like, dragon's horde of better weapons mm -hmm. until it's time to, like, face that boss where I need them. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that is a little silly in this game, it turns out, because there is actually pretty reasonable ammo supply. But like, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so a matter of using your arsenal was, uh, yeah, one of the kind of the bigger challenges uh, mechanically. What about in terms of ideas and kind of narrative <laughs> and plot um, and right maybe melodrama, these things you were kind of excited for, but also I think dreading a little bit? Yeah. Um, how do I even start to talk about this? Oh boy. Um, so I think... This game has a lot of great, great ideas and huge elaborate characters that occasionally tip over into excess in a couple <laughs> of key points. So it did lose me a couple of times. On balance, though, this was a fun romp through like a world of super intense weirdos that I didn't really have to be that mm. stealthy about, which mm -hmm. was great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And did you get a sense of um, kind of the Kojima touch? I got more than a little sense of the Kojima touch. I feel like I got the <laughs> Kojima slap a couple of times. Um, I mean, we are going to have to talk about the Psycho Mantis fight at some point. But that, I think, is the point where most clearly I was like, eh, he could use an editor. <laughs> like, he needs, I think he's going to be one of those guys who needs someone around to tell him no sometimes, you know? But it, you can also see why people kind of get excited. Oh, because yeah. You never know what he's going to do next. Correct. Um, Make you look at the back of your CD case. Yeah, we'll, we'll get there. Which I don't have. Um, <laughs> I think the greatest moment for you was in the Psycho Mantis fight when the screen goes black and it kind of hijacks your TV. But instead of saying video, it says, Hideo. Yeah, it's like trying to look like you changed the input or whatever to like your VCR. But yeah, it's Hideo. So, okay. The first time it does that, oh, well, aren't you cute? How darling. <laughs> Go on. The second time it does that in the same fight, you're like, okay, you, no, nah, we're good. We're good here. <laughs> we we cannot. Moment. 
This is this is the moment. Hideo this is a, almost broke you. Yeah, this is the moment when I was like, I don't know, dude. Um, especially because I think I died a couple times on Psycho Mantis. Mm-hmm. So by the time you're like fighting Psycho Mantis for the third time, and it's effectively the sixth time you've had this like Hideo trick played on you, where like you can't see what's going on on screen. Like it just like once was enough, right? But it did give us a new term with which we'll describe all of Kojima's yep. games moving forward, um, Hideo games. Yep. You were very proud of that one, and I support you. <laughs> and that is what they, by his own, see, he wouldn't have had to write that tweet if he had just thought of the term Hideo games. <laughs> Nobody tell him. <laughs> um, but overall, I think you did actually come away feeling positively about this game. Yeah, I, I like this game. I think this game is cool. I think it's got lots of big, ambitious ideas, and it takes a lot of swings and most of them are hits and a couple are misses. And like, I have a lot of time for a game that does that. Um, There was some stuff that drove me nuts, but like, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So let's talk about some of the gameplay, especially the stealth gameplay. So in the setup episode, we talked kind of about your experience with stealth, what you like from stealth games. And I couldn't tell you this at the moment, but pretty much everything that you said that you don't like about stealth games, this game does. Yeah. Um, So how did it work as a stealth game for you? So, I mean, one of the funny things is I was expecting it to be more stealthy. Like for me, the actual format of this game is basically a series of boss fights Mm. with some diddly parts in between, (laughs) especially like the back half is just like boss fight, boss fight, boss fight, boss fight, boss fight. But there are definite stealth points. And one of the things that this game made me reflect on is that sometimes the things that you think you want in a game aren't actually the things (laughs) that you want. So one of the first things that happened for me in this playthrough was that I climbed into a vent being like, all right, let's do this. Let's get around to a sneaky point. And that vent goes nowhere. You crawl all around, pick up a bunch of items, and it goes nowhere. And as soon as you're emerging from the vent, you hear two guys who are standing around being like, oh, yeah, did you hear the vents are open for clean? Like, it gives this, like, super realistic, like... Yeah, and so I was hearing this, and just based on our discussion, I was like, oh, Michelle's going to love this. There are <laughs> vents that go nowhere, right? Yeah. There's kind of a like realistic... Reality. There's a realistic space. There are characters justifying why some vents are open, yeah. some aren't. They're justifying <laughs> why the doors will just open yeah. when you walk near them with your key card. Yep. All of this has, like, real... It's real world yeah in in kind of the diegesis of the game right it's contextualized in the world i'm like michelle's gonna love this and then the first thing she does is complain about the dead ends in the vents <laughs> i was like what the hell this vent goes nowhere <laughs> and you're like you said about vents so even the thing that i thought you'd like you didn't like and i'm like oh god once she once she, she sees these cones <laughs> the vision cones the vision cones aren't the worst but they aren't the best so i would say the two big flaws with the vi- the the sides of the vision cones are pretty good in this game in terms of like whether you're in or out of it on on the edges where this game is a little fuzzy and a little silly with the vision cones is with distance so like it'll only show the vision cone going a little way in front of the guy and if you're in like an open room you can walk straight through what logically should be the guy's field of vision as long as you're like 20 game feet away from him. You know what I mean? Like there's nothing in the way. They clearly can like, it makes sense that they would see you, but you're just a little far enough away, even though there's nothing in between you that they don't. The other thing is I figured out pretty early that if you're on a staircase, Mm -hmm. you sort of don't count as either on the floor 
below or the floor above, um, except for like one sequence that's just a staircase mm-hmm. where you count as on all floors at all times. <laughs> so like if guys can be walking straight towards you, you can be right in their cone. But if you're like elevated four feet, they like don't look up enough to. Right, <laughs> to you're dealing spot with te- you're dealing with technical limitations. No, I, I know, I know, but it's but you've still... just played so many more kind of advanced, um, yeah, stealth games, and I mean even Metal Gear Solid Two will account for all of these things. Okay, that's cool. But yeah, and and the way you played was not like a stealth game. You just <laughs> you left kind of a trail of bodies. There's that moment when you get in, when you see all of those slaughtered bodies that you learn that the cyborg ninja killed. <laughs> and you were like, no biggie. Like, I clearly, I killed easily that many people. I left that many in my way, too. <laughs> like, this must be my friend. <laughs> and yeah, and, and part of this is like, when you knock guards out, they don't remain. So you don't have to hide the bodies. Yeah. And so there was no incentive for you really to be stealthy mm-hmm. once you figured out that you really didn't have to be. You killed so many guards. The first guard, when they're just trying to teach you the stealth... <laughs> You just ran up and snapped his neck. Well, well, I mean, first you 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 got seen, yeah, and then you ran behind him and snapped his neck. Yeah, well, <laughs> and, I, and part of that's the game. I think that's part of it was your approach to the game. <laughs> Where how Kojima was envisioning this is that each room would almost be like a little mini puzzle box. Yeah, that you'd have to stealth around. Even when he was making it, he actually built all the sets of Legos. Oh, really? And made and kind of had a little mini camera so he could actually record what it would look like. Huh. But yeah, you kind of just ran through and kicked and snapped necks. I mean, there's a lot of necks I didn't snap. <laughs> <laughs> I did a lot of it pretty... St- I would say the beginning was rough when I was sort of getting my feet under me, mm-hmm. especially with the controls and everything. Definitely, I got caught a lot then. I would say I got more stealthy as we went. Yeah, to, to your credit, when you had to do all that backtracking towards the end with the key card, yeah. and you had to bring it somewhere hot and somewhere cold, Yeah, you kind of killed that part of the game thank you <laughs> yeah you did you stealth your way through you really took advantage of that sneaking suit and did it justice so i mean i mean i can say that i think one of the things we talked about in the setup episode was that sometimes in stealth games it's frustrating because you your character ends up being so fragile that if you get caught at all it's sort of game over like there's an absoluteness to that and i i will say i, I liked the balance of that here like you sort of, there was definite risk with getting caught, especially in a space with multiple guys. Like you could easily get overwhelmed, mm-hmm. but also sometimes you could fight your way out and you could run and you could find somewhere to hide and you could sort of like push through a little mistake. So Or become a mass murderer <laughs> and wipe out all the guards. You think Snake hasn't killed people? <laughs> well, it's you- a topic <laughs> that we talk about in this game. It, it, yeah, it is. And uh, yeah, you even mentioned that he didn't look like a quiet guy to you. You thought he'd actually go in with his uh, kind of fist forward. And, and I would you say he did. <laughs> he, that's how you RP'd him. It's canon for me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, also with him being a quiet guy, Snake never shuts up. <laughs> I can't believe how much talking is in this game. Yeah. I thought for like, I thought he would be more of a stony, reticent, not engaging with other people type. He's chatting on the codec all the time. He's talking to everybody. He's flirting, if you like, or maybe sexually harassing literally every woman that he meets. Like he's he's he'll talk for as long as you want on that codec <laughs> I mean, about th- whatever. <laughs> this game really is kind of three quarters radio play. It is so much talking, including like you will get interruptions when you're <laughs> some bad guy is like coming at your throat, like you're like being charged by um Vulcan Raven or whatever, and like. 
Mei Ling, <laughs> I heard you wanted to be a combat pilot. <laughs> Did you ever take the certification exam? Oh, Snake, no. I like it. Just you'll go into these like bizarre long conversations that it's like, why is this happening? You can be hiding like behind in a room full of guys, but just like squatting behind some boxes. You can call up people on your codec and have like a long history about geopolitics with Nastasha. And like no one hears you. Snake's openly. It's not a whisper. He's just talking like I'm talking now. Like it's so chatty. Did you appreciate the chattiness? I mean, once I got used to it and also once the opening horniness was over (laughs) like in the beginning was like a little rough yeah and and i mean as it took you a while to get used to having your arsenal it took you a while to get in the habit of just calling people up when you were stuck or needed a little bit more information yeah i came to really like that as a as a thing that was in the game i love sort of being able to access those hints and like calling people when I just had a conversation about something was like, Nastasha, what do you have to say about this? Like, <laughs> I grew to really, really appreciate that also. But yeah, it took at the start, it took a while. And you sort of reminding me when I would like be in a boss fight and like not sure what to do, be like, check your codec. You have a whole team of people here to advise you. I'd be like, oh, right. Some more useful than others. <laughs> Some more. Master Miller. I called from the start that Master <laughs> Miller was useless. Because in the beginning, he's just like, Remember, experience matters the most on the battlefield. Like, great. What am I supposed to do with that? The premise of this show is that I don't have experience. Yeah. Weren't you satisfied, though, that there was an actual, again, in-game world reason why he was so useless? Yes. I have to say <laughs> I, I was, which like... You felt just vindicated? I was like, I knew it. I <laughs> knew it. Yeah. And at one point, he's like, trust your instincts as a soldier, as a gamer. Like, what? <laughs> what? Yeah, Get out of here. <laughs> Breaking the fourth wall. He's the worst. Master (laughs) Miller is the worst. He was the worst even before all the betrayal. (laughs) That was the least of his crimes. (laughs) Um, So you did describe this. You said that this this feels like a series of boss fights with some, quote, diddly sections in between. I think that's how you phrased it. Yep. So maybe we should spend some time talking about the boss fights because they really are the centerpiece. They're spectacular. Um, As I mentioned last time... Um, or as I mentioned, I think probably when we were talking about Super Metroid and we see that statue of all the bosses, right? Mm-hmm. I love a rogues gallery. Mm-hmm. I love knowing who the bosses are up front. Opening cutscene in this one, baby. O- opening cutscene. And then you can spend kind of half an hour just in the mission briefings, learning some more details about each of them, wondering what they're gonna what they're gonna be like in the game, how which you I might did. encounter them. Yeah, which you did. Um you do fight all of them except um Decoy Octopus. Who Michelle kept referring to as disguise, disguise octopus. octopus. I cannot believe they made a guy called Decoy Octopus and didn't make him a thing that I actually have to fight. They're just like, oh, yeah, he here's your twist. He was that guy who died. Like, what? That's because he's I not- kept thinking that was a ruse and that it, yeah. he was going to show up as a boss. And I was like, kind of stoked for it. He was maybe the one I was most stoked to fight. What if it turns out that Meryl is she's riding with you on your snowmobile she's the and she's Decoy Octopus? <laughs> it turns into Octodad. <laughs> I hope that somewhere out there uh, in a future Metal Gear Solid, Decoy Octopus shows up and is avenged <laughs> or some other octopus since I guess they can. Some other octopus. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So we need to talk about some of these boss fights. What a waste. Unfortunately, not Decoy Octopus. So let's start off the top. You already mentioned this, uh, the Revolver Ocelot fight before, because this was really the first time yeah. you kind of had to use your your gun. It has a it has a it begins so well. Where, mm-hmm. where he kind of comes out and he's in his duster 
and he's spinning his gun for like five minutes. <laughs> his like steampunk entrance. And then he's doing that and he's like, now I'll show you why they call me Revolver or you'll see why they call me Revolver, which is not the question <laughs> like, we had. No. Like, why do they call you Ocelot? <laughs> yeah. That's the much more interesting Twiddling question. Twiddling a revolver for eight minutes <laughs> of silence. <laughs> it's like, we know why they call you revolver. And he set it up in like a, it's like a spider trap. Like oh yeah, that set piece is great. That set piece is so good, but also not really ocelot Like, <laughs> it also doesn't answer the question, you mm-hmm. know? And so this, this was a great fight because Michelle's running around. And then she thinks she's going to be, she thinks she's a genius. Listen, he's been lecturing me on not using all the tools in my arsenal. Keep that in mind, listeners. So she decides to plant her C4 on the floor. Hell yeah. He's running around, taking too long to shoot him. Shooting is hard at this point. <laughs> so Ocelot runs by and she blows it up thinking again, she's a genius. Got him. And then just the whole room goes yeah. up. Forgot about the trip wires. <laughs> was... I blew up the, the DARPA chief. Is that him? No. Who's that? Uh, the arms tech president Baker. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, he uh, he got blown up along with the rest of us. Yeah, because he's already surrounded by C4. He's all wired up. And Michelle's like, let's just light the fuse. <laughs> no, again, her solid snake, not a quiet guy. <laughs> no, he's loud. Never shuts up. <laughs> but so of the other boss fights, um, any any that stood out as either kind of positively or negatively? Yeah, for sure. I mean, for sure in both directions. Um <laughs> I loved the fight with the ninja. It was like very intense. And I actually, I really liked figuring out how to get those timings down and everything. Oh, you, loved, you did? I did, actually. Okay. Hmm. I loved the intro to that, the lead up. The ninja is so mm-hmm. like intimidating. Even just, you're in this sort of confined room, but it really like responds. Like he's flipping around and trying to attack you. And he's like breaking glass panels in the room and like papers are flying everywhere. Like the room really reacts to his like really kinetic fight style. And I really like, I felt like I beat him. Like, you know, sometimes you you like do a boss and you're just like, okay, I like succeeded at the thing that it wanted me mm-hmm. to do. With uh, with the ninja, I was like, I won. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I just beat his ass <laughs> and I won. Um, I really liked it. Um, it was weird. Uh, I liked the Vulcan Raven second fight. I liked them both, I should say. Okay. The first one where he's in the tank and then the second one where he's around with the, with the what I thought was a wind turbine. <laughs> I love... Using that remote control missile. Yeah, you really did like that fight. I mean, it it's pretty. It can be pretty challenging. Yeah, it took me a while, and I did towards the end. I was like, I would love to be done with this now, <laughs> but I thought it was really fun and really cool, and I loved like figuring out how to manipulate his movements and how to get him in the back with the missile and trap him so I could blow him up. Hey, that's when my C four worked. Oh, that's true. Yeah, you did use C four, and it worked really well. No, actually, I used the the mines. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I like lured him into a corner and then set mines all around the outside of him. Yeah, that's uh, you did kind of play that one like more like a strategy game, mm-hmm. right? kind of um, setting up your pieces on the yep, board. And then I did. it was all about him. controlling where he was going to be and go and then, yeah, getting mm-hmm. in behind him for sure. I did. So uh, as a transition full of the highest highs and the lowest lows, our friend Psycho Mantis. Yeah, so I, I didn't tell you about this last time because I didn't want to spoil anything, but this is really for so many people and of the time, like the defining moment, okay. the the lead up to Psychomantis and then the fight itself. This is kind of what really lingered in people's memories as being so distinct and unique. Because of the uh, the rattling the controller? Because of like rattling the controller, reading the memory cards. Right. And so Which, we... by the way, <laughs> negged me real hard going into the start oh, of so, the Oh, so yeah. Show. So he reads your... He reads your progress. Yeah. And depending on how, how you've played, 
And yeah, I think you got both of the. You're the a neg- careless man, <laughs> Snake. <laughs> um, I did get. You're a cautious man. You save a lot. <laughs> right. That was and the only neg- positive that I got. Um, and then yeah, so we obviously because we were playing on the uh, PlayStation Classic, um, didn't have a rumble, so I'd had to. I kind of filled Michelle in on how... <laughs> he just came up beside me and went... <laughs> I, I showed Michelle that cutscene where he does ask you to put the controller on the ground and then with his mind control, like, mm-hmm. makes it rumble, which at the time was kind of groundbreaking. Sure. And then I showed her where he could read your where he could read your memory card. Yeah. Yeah. So you explained how that worked because I, it's not super apparent necessarily. I see you, Log. Suikoden. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You showed me the cut with where you have all of the Konami games installed. And it's like, mm-hmm. I see you like RPGs. And it's like, I do. Um, <laughs> so obviously, we didn't get any of that. But yeah, Michelle was much less impressed by that than uh, people were at the at the time. <laughs> I was like, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, fair. So and the, oh, sorry. And then the other thing, obviously, that blew people's well, minds yeah. was the, 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 the controller. No, well, no, the controller swap. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is the reason why you saw Hideo so much because you Right. Took you a while to figure out. That I had to switch to port two for the controller. Yes. Yeah. And again, you weren't very impressed with that. No, you know what I was not impressed with is the fact that I had to switch it back to port one every <laughs> time I died and had to start over. I was like, so on top of me dying and being annoyed, I have to get my ass off this couch, <laughs> go up to my PlayStation, move this thing over for literally like 45 seconds until it's like, ooh, what are you going to? Okay, like get back up and move it to port two. So yeah, that, I mean, I, do I think that's clever? Kind of, kind of, like not no, <laughs> um, but it's not what I really loved about this fight. What I loved about this fight actually was managing Meryl. Like I loved how, like, cause he's, he's sort of like possessed, Mer- not exactly possessed, but he's whatever. He's like got psychic control of Meryl and he's getting her to, and the start, he's getting her to advance on you and you have to sort of like take her out without really hurting her or killing her. And then as the fight goes on, he's got her holding a gun to her own head. So you have to balance like getting to her, taking her out without killing her, like neutralizing her, making sure she's not in the way of damage. And like, she did catch a couple bullets from me at one point. I was like, oh God, you killed her once. By mistake. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But like, I really liked, I like that part of the fight where it's like, okay, this is, there's also a party here that I'm like trying to protect. Mm. So I really like that stuff. And the rest of the fight with him where, where he's like really using the room and the environment, like all that stuff I thought was really, really cool. It really was mostly by like the third time around seeing that like Hideo trick on the screen and moving the controllers. It was like, okay. Okay, like, all right. Yeah, very clever, very good. I can tell that you're very proud of yourself for having thought of this. I would love to just move through this boss fight a little more quickly. And then, and then. So a thing that I really like is that all of the all the characters get death speeches, but much like the other sort of times we've talked about in this fight where a good idea tips over into excess, the Mantis death speech <laughs> is so long. He's laying there dying. He like takes off his mask. Goes, My father never loved me. My mother died in childbirth, and he knew that he could never feel for me anything. I grew up alone. 
using my powers for only myself. <laughs> like the last thing he says is like, this is he. So first of all, he has a completely unmotivated deathbed turn where he's like, oh, did you want to go on and kill the rest of our organization? Here, let me open a secret door for you. And then he's like, with his dying breath, he's like, that was the first time I've ever used my powers to help someone else. It feels nice. It's like you never, in your whole life, you never once used your powers to help anyone but you. There was never like a girl you liked in fifth grade or like to help your boss or something. Like you're in this organization. I'm supposed to feel bad for you that this is your first experience of helping a person. Did you not hear his whole backstory? (laughs) I did. Do you need me to recite it again? It goes on so long. Michelle it's is, so long. So yeah, Michelle is generally unmoved by most things, I would say, in this game. Uh, I found Sniper Wolf's death actually oh, a, really? a bit affecting. Okay. Yeah. That was the one? I, the death that speech one, that worked? Yeah, at least to an extent. And I think part of it was like I felt, uh, I mean, it was very stupid that Otacon was like sort of in love with her. But, you know, he does arrive there just in time to, it's like her speech about the like, the being a proud wolf and like she gets her rifle back with her and like the history of like where she I don't know like that one worked for me and also like I'm kind of a sucker for the mood of like softly falling snow Mm -hmm. as Mm -hmm. like a sad tragic quiet end to things like that that's something that works for me in a lot of uh, movies and other times I've seen it so yeah sniper wolf's death speech I liked um did you like how snake didn't take the handkerchief because he has no tears left to shed (laughs) So remember when I said about excesses of <laughs> <laughs> like, there's a good idea. And then there's like the thing that's one too far <laughs> or, well, that's another thing after he takes out the helicopter or whatever it's called, <laughs> yeah. when you wipe it out, it like crashes, awesome. and he, and he, which is like wild. I love these. Lines. Um, he says something like, he says, see you in hell, see you in hell. And then a beat later, I guess that takes care of the cremation. It's like, <laughs> what? You got to put both like, those lines yeah. in. You can just picture Kojima and like his editor being like, no, no, leave them both. <laughs> like, why choose just one? <laughs> I think it was the right choice. <laughs> it's like, uh, I mean, what if, this is what I mean. Also, like Snake is like this guy who like makes stupid jokes about <laughs> the, the helicopter he just shot out of the sky with his twin on it. Like, it's, <laughs> I don't know. It's like much, uh, he's much more of a character than I was expecting. So to go back to, to Sniper Wolf and to, to the boss fights. Um, again, those are some of the boss fights that, uh, for a lot of people stand out as highlights and you didn't love the sniper battles. So I didn't love the second sniper battle. Okay. The first sniper battle. So the setup to it, I found frustrating because like Meryl gets shot and she's like basically laying there dying and you're like, oh, hang on a sec. I got to run back to the beginning of the game to get a sniper rifle. (laughs) You just leave her there for like a minute. So that I was a, a bit like, this is wild. But I did fundamentally like that fight. I like that that the the sniping feels really unsteady and you can take, um, is it an Ativan that you can take? Yeah, diazepam. Yeah, diazepam, yeah. Um, to like steady your hands. Mm-hmm. Like that whole thing I thought was really, really clever. It felt like, much more human and much less video gamey with the, the unsteadiness mm-hmm. of, because you have to assume that being a sniper is hard, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the second sniper wolf fight, I sort of, ended up just figuring out that I could run to like the bottom right corner of the screen and stand there and just 
like watch for her beside trees with my sniper rifle. And like she wasn't hitting me. Like so it basically just turned into kind of a rote watch where she runs, shoot her. Like there it didn't feel like I didn't feel vulnerable. I didn't feel exposed. Mm. Like the first one felt dangerous. Um the second one didn't really. Okay. Yeah. That, yeah, that that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and especially, you know, I, I think like in most other games, I would have thought it was like a perfectly good boss fight. But this game has such inventive, such thoughtful, such good set piece boss fights mm-hmm. that just this one, I was like, you could have done better. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just moving on from the boss fights. One of the things we talked about last time, too, was Kojima's history with kind of the adventure game genre. And I mm-hmm. think we did. I kind of warn you that there would be some of those elements that seeped into this game, some puzzle elements. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked about one where right, kind of putting the ketchup on you to make it look like you're bleeding, which is a great little puzzle, I yeah. thought. Yeah, it's cute. It's cute. <laughs> um, yeah, you already talked about how it's kind of very talky. There is a lot of yep. dialogue, which comes from his history making um, Police Knots and Snatcher. Uh, you got the codex system, which doubles as a hint system. Mm-hmm. But then you have some puzzle elements that a little bit more obscure. Um, the one you've already referenced it, but I think we need to dig in a bit deeper. The The CD case. Yeah, uh, or in my puzzle. case, the picture of the back of the CD case on the back <laughs> of the box. Right. This time when you you need to call Meryl and and um, Colonel Campbell tells you that her frequency is on the back of the CD case. Yeah. Meaning literally the jewel case that the game came in. Yeah. Which obviously in 10 years, I would never have figured out. Right, considering you don't have the context of having a jewel case, right? Like, I haven't that's not even, touched a jewel yeah. <laughs> case in 10 years, probably. Um, but apart from that, apart from the fact that as a as a puzzle that references kind of this physical object, that it's uh, it doesn't really work in 2019 when you're playing kind of, a, like, kind of an emulated version on the PS Classic. Yeah. Um, even though, right, they did include it on the back of the box. So at well, least they there's had some to. Foresight. <laughs> yeah, at least they thought of that. What do you think of that? And, and maybe some of these other kind of, fourth wall breaking moments in the game in general i guess like why that's that's kind of (laughs) where i am so i'm wondering like do you think there's a point so okay so we see some of those in the psychomantis fight sure and because he is a psychic i guess it kind of makes some thematic sense okay okay yeah i still don't i still think for example that him knowing about and commenting on kind of your play style yeah works yeah best because It's at least it's commenting on you playing it, but it's still commenting on something that happened in the game. You, yeah, you can picture him lore wise reading that in the character Snake's mm-hmm. memory and mind. Right. I don't get a sense that Snake loves Suikoden. <laughs> Maybe if this was an Otacon as your protagonist, it would work. Right. But it's it right, just, right, right. But it it just this that kind of he's talking to you then. Is, yeah, it's Not, talking yeah. to you, yeah, the yeah, player, yeah, yeah. and yeah. and it only makes sense if it's talking to you, the player. Yeah. Similarly, um, making it rumble yeah. is for you, the player. Right. Because he's not he's not saying, Snake, he, I will shake your body. He says, place your controller on the ground. Yes. <laughs> like, if you picture Snake in the room hearing that, being like, what? And so those moments, and then the CD case moment, mm-hmm. what is, can you tease out a point there for me? Uh, Kojima <laughs> thought they would blow people's minds. I, I mean, it worked. <laughs> it, it worked. That's it, that's it. It did work. I just think, in general, in any game, not just games that Kojima makes, but mm-hmm. by and large, this type of nonsense fourth wall breaking, and okay, 
So this is this is kind of spoilery, but you'll probably forget about this if we ever get there. Definitely. These things would make sense in Metal Gear Solid 2 for a number of reasons. Okay. It would make so much more sense to have these types of fourth wall breaking moments mm. in 2. In this game, to me, they made no sense. Um, and it's not just in games. It's like across media. Any, yeah. of these, any of these moments that just break the fourth wall just to do it. Mm-hmm. I feel like they're just these stupid tricks that are employed to make the person watching the thing or playing the thing feel smart or that they're in on the joke. Right. Because they recognize that, that that's the fourth wall has been broken. Yeah, yeah. Um, and a lot of people try to justify this. So you see this in criticism all the time across media where they see these moments and they justify them as fitting into the story. And they always say, well, this is a sign that the director or the producer or the game maker really understands the medium they're working with because they're reflecting on it. I hope to God if you're making a movie <laughs> or if you're making a game, you have the basic understanding right. of like the conventions of the medium or the genre right. you're working with it. Right. Because otherwise, don't put your art into the world. <laughs> don't share it. Okay, we're back. And and over that little break, I took some time to reflect. <laughs> and I had a little bit of change of heart, or at least I want to clarify some things about that rant. Okay. So first of all, that rant wasn't directed at consumers of the product or or just general people who like Metal Gear Solid. Right. And like, and like that moment. Because to tell the truth, I'm sure that when I saw that the first time and realized that they were referring to the jewel case in the real world. Right. I thought that I was surprised and thought that was really clever. I was entertained. And delighted and and entertained. Yeah, it's okay to just be trying to have a good time. Yeah. And I also want to take back what I said about artists. Oh. If you're an artist, share whatever you want with the world. Go oh, ahead. Yeah. Make mediocre art. That rules. Yeah. Do whatever you want. Um, who am I to tell you that you can't put your art into the world in whatever form that it's in? But here's the thing. Here's what here's here's where this is really directed. It's really directed at Critics, especially people who are paid right, for right, their right, opinions right, right. on these right. things. It's different if you're a professional who's like, you, you're being compensated for having like better thought out ideas than like most people about this subject. Yeah, please, please don't stand up and applaud these moments. Because <laughs> um, really the thing that really bothers me is moments, lazy breaking of the fourth wall, mm-hmm. where it's it's treated as if it's this brilliant moment where it's really just doing the bare minimum. Mm-hmm. And really, I think when critics like applaud those moments, I just think the critics applauding themselves and thinking that they're smart for noticing it. You know what I mean? Ah, <laughs> uh, We're both in on the joke. How droll. Yeah. And right. Like people are probably thinking that I'm doing that same thing right now by <laughs> pointing out what the critics are doing when they point out things in the game. And it's just this mise on a beam of people patting themselves on the back. <laughs> and And fair enough. <laughs> a bit a bit yeah <laughs> but 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 i really want fourth wall breaking moments or self-reflexive moments to have to do more than just acknowledge the bare minimum or the very like the basic tenets of a genre or a medium it can be an interesting tool when done for a purpose yeah but it needs to have a point beyond yeah. the fact that I am aware that I am a game or I am a movie or I'm an action game. <laughs> like, good. 
Yeah. So, so yeah, please just don't, if, especially if you're paid for this stuff, just don't applaud these moments. And maybe if we see these lazier ones occur, just as a general thing we can do collectively, we can just kind of like nod politely at them, mm-hmm. but no standing ovations, <laughs> no throwing roses and yelling bravo. Because if we just do the polite nod, then maybe like the artist will work harder to get to really earn the standing okay. ovations, you know? <laughs> yeah, and they that, do. And that's a better world for all of us. I That's a future that I look forward to. <laughs> Michelle, I have a question for you. What? Do you think that love can blossom on the battlefield? Oh, my God. <laughs> so I think what we're going to do for the rest of this show is just um, look at two big topics that Michelle wanted to talk about in relation to Metal Gear Solid, two big themes. Mm-hmm. And um, I know you're really interested in what this game is saying or trying to say or thinks it's saying yep. about war and um, in particular, maybe even Kojima's relationship to war and weaponry. Yeah. And uh, kind of the military industrial complex. Yeah. This game is obsessed with weapons and not just nukes, although nukes are obviously a big part of the story. But I'm sort of interested in how how it's both um, it both looks at them with real horror and looks at the systems of like bureaucratic neglect that lead to their misuse with real horror and also like thinks that they're sick. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and really relies on that duality for most of its fun, right? Mm-hmm. Like you have to be kind of in a fun way impressed by like, oh no, nukes in like a mobile like mech suit. Like some part of you inside has to be like, shit, that's rad to, <laughs> to like buy into this entire thing, right? Yeah. And I mean, the game goes into great detail about the different weapons, about the guns. It clearly has kind of this um, gun fetishism. Mm-hmm. I mean, Kojima and his team did come to California and worked with military advisors and SWAT teams and looked at the actual weapons. So they did all this actual work um, to make sure that all of the details were right. And they want to make sure you know about it. Uh, yeah. And I mean, that's a tension that is pretty much in most art, especially kind of movies and games that are about war about um about violence right that it's very hard to be purely critical mm-hmm. right? there's always going to be some part of it that is if not kind of fetishizing or glorifying war at least presenting it as possibly entertaining yeah and i i'm also not of the opinion that we need to relitigate this with every game that has shooting or killing mm-hmm. or war in it like i'm not of the opinion that we have to talk about like is killing bad every right. time we do that but this game really goes out of its way to talk to you in very concrete detail. And I would argue at times to lecture you, especially about like nuclear proliferation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're getting long diatribes from Nastasha about the evils of um, mines that were left behind mm-hmm. when uh, armies retreated from from spaces and didn't basically clean up after themselves. You're seeing a bunch of like live action footage or newsreel yeah. footage of these things. Yeah. Um, that again, ha- almost has this documentary quality to it that is explaining, right? It is explaining something about the world to you, yeah, and um, you in really, the context of this game. You really feel the game like looking into the camera and being like, we've had a lot of fun here today. But we want to tell you about mine safety. <laughs> um, <laughs> and like, it's interesting. I mean, one of the things that is recurring in this game is the debate over whether Snake likes war and killing, which different characters have different ideas of what he thinks. Mm-hmm. But what he thinks himself and what he presents is like wildly inconsistent. And I really am having trouble sorting out what 
we're even supposed to make of this core character? Like, it, this is not a rhetorical question. Like, tell me actually, like, what does Snake think about war? <laughs> <laughs> like, he he himself represents his opinion in a, a whole bunch of different ways over the course of this game, depending on who he's talking to, what's going on, what's convenient. And a lot of the time it, because I think of, because of that inconsistency, I think sometimes it just feels like um, battle weary cliches, like just that, things yeah. that tough guys say. That's the thing. So there's, so at some point you wonder, right, is, is Snake an actual character or is he just kind of another version of this trope? Right, of right, right, right. The, the man who has been kind of, born in war and defined by war right and knows that war is you know bad and doesn't want to kill but is so defined by that that he can't escape and mm -hmm. and to what extent is that just a trope and to what extent is this game actually saying something either about that trope or about this character separate from the trope yeah for sure um i definitely had that question and one of the things that um was interesting for me that emerged through this is I think in the way characters talk and think in this game, there, it's almost like there's a difference between um, war, which is bad and political and done by bureaucrats or like high command and like only choose up guys like you and me versus battle, which mm -hmm. is done by men, which can, you know, have honor in it, which is maybe good, which is like some men's genetic destiny in this game. Like it really is. This game does argue that it is an inherent, um, if not good, then like a joy or a pleasure for lots of people. And it's sort of like different from what a war is. Yeah. And I mean, that's, again, another literary movie trope mm -hmm. of this kind of critique of masculinity, but that masculinity in its purest form is something that is aggressive. Right. And that should be allowed to be aggressive and not co-opted by the government or by the interests of capital. And mm -hmm. that male aggression and right battle is kind of beautiful mm -hmm. but once it is co-opted then it then it becomes kind of degraded and corrupt which is funny because then it's like once it's for something it's right. not good anymore um and i think it's it's interesting to me also that along those lines pretty much every character in here even ones who aren't you know members of foxhound their life has been shaped by war and mm -hmm. most of the good characters in this story a are feminized in some way, like either are Meryl, Nastasha, Mailing, or Otacon, who I would argue in some ways is like a demasculinized man. Like in that, like he doesn't do battle. He sort of is behind the scenes. I mean, he pisses his pants. He pisses his second. He's you a piss pants. <laughs> <laughs> Which so one thing that Michelle was wondering throughout the entirety of the game would always yep. bring it up is when he's in his in his invisibility suit. You you can lay this. Does out. he smell like piss? <laughs> can you smell him? This is something she would think about all the time. It came up. And if that would give away his invisibility. People were very nice not to mention it. But anyway, what I, what I was going to say He's is that like, all the... Sorry, just picturing him like professing his love to Sniper Wolf as she's dying. And she's like... And she has this acute sense of smell because she's been with the wolf. Because she's a wolf. <laughs> yeah. And she's like, do you smell piss? That's her dying breath. He's like, are you okay, man? <laughs> Sorry. No, that's okay. I mean, the thing I was going to say is that like most of the I'm I'm calling them good characters, like the the characters that the the game sets up as like um morally like good or uncomplicated. Mm -hmm. Um A are feminized and B have only been touched by war from a distance. So um we have like 
Otacon, who most of what he knows of battle and stuff is through Japanimation. Um, Meryl gets into being a soldier because she loved like military movies. Even Nastasha and Mei Ling, they both talk about how they got into what they're doing because of watching these sort of like glamorizing movies and stuff. So there's like, it's, they, their like goodness almost comes from like a naivety of being away mm. from actual battle. And so a weird thing that comes of this is I feel like the hypothesis seems to be that war makes monsters, right? But then we have this whole thing about can love bloom on a battlefield, which is like re-injecting this human element into the experience of being a warrior or being like a soldier. And I just don't know if it works or not. <laughs> I'm just not sure. The kind of the, the easy cop-out answer here is that in 1998, games weren't making people contemplate these things. So the right, fact that right. we're even having this discussion at all, right, I think, right. really works to the game's credit. Mm -hmm. But again, it is right. It is kind of this full piece of art. So whether that is resolved within it or not, I think it's still worth talking about. Well, and you just made the same argument about breaking the fourth wall that like, it's I not know. if it doesn't do something, then like what? So I, I don't know. I don't know. This is really this and, is really tricky. And I, I, I'm very curious to see if you play through the rest of the series, because because, again, this is this is a series. And so these themes recur again and again. And so um, maybe you'll see it as more resolved by the end of the series. Mm -hmm. As these characters develop, a lot of these characters move kind of carry forward. Okay. But yeah, this game in itself, I, I think it is inherently kind of conflicted mm -hmm. in, in this sense about what it really wants to say about about war. Yeah. It just seems to want to say something, which is why I bring it up here. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's very clear on its on its thoughts on nuclear war. Right. Right. Yes. So and that's and that's one thing. It's it is still a little bit funny that you have this very, you know, I'm of mixed minds on this because you have this very elevated tone. Um, and then you have these very like textbook explanations of like um, what has happened to all the the nuclear warheads and their byproducts mm -hmm. um, after nuclear disarmament or as that continues. The status of different treaties is like mm -hmm. <laughs> discussed in this. Um, and those two tones are are kind of kind of weird and i don't know that they sit well with each other in this specific game it's not that i it's not that i don't think they ever could because i think we have cultural examples where we have this very sort of melodramatic um tone that that is about like nuclear power i mean i haven't seen dr strangelove in a long time but i feel like that kind of fits into this model we can think about the recent wolfensteins as being both sort of these like really pulpy action games that also kind of managed to have a position on uh the wars that they're that they're mm -hmm. part of. And I sort of find it interesting to think about the idea that maybe like nuclear power is a horror so immense that we sort of need these heightened terms to to think about how they play out. I don't know. It just it was weird to be in 2019, which is not when this game was made, but is when I played it, it was weird to be lectured to about how we have to do something about dealing with residual nuclear warheads. But then as I thought about it more, like I sort of remembered this in a different context and realized, you know, this was made by a Japanese team and a Japanese man. And like Japanese people, for some reason, may have different feelings about nuclear power and warheads than I as a North American do. Mm -hmm. And like maybe Japanese people kind of get to feel however they want about nukes for basically the rest of time. Like, mm -hmm. I think there's a real cultural difference in what what comes to mind and what we think about and what we feel when we talk about nuclear power. 
Yeah. And again, I don't know if it's something that's ever resolved, but this idea of there being two forms of war or or how you kind of differentiate between war and battle, this is something that continues. So you have, in this case, nuclear war, which is, again, is this type of war that is so immense and so kind of abstracted from individuals on the ground mm-hmm. battling. By the time you get to Metal Gear Solid 4, you're dealing with proxy wars fought between corporations. Sure. And so it's this uh, it's this recurring idea of what what happens to war, what is war, and who are the people involved when they're so abstracted from the causes mm-hmm. um, and from kind of the ideas that the war is being fought over, hmm. or they're so abstracted from the weaponry that is being used to and and deployed as part of war. Because hmm. I, I I just keep right because Vulcan Raven is kind of this again it's it's very tropey as yeah. this kind of Native <laughs> American character. Um, but right, he talks about war being a sport. Mm-hmm. And can you have can you have a sporting war? Can you have a sporting battle when you're talking about nukes? Right. I don't think you can. Right. And so I think there's there's that element that's that they're trying to work out a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to I don't want to open this up, but it it did actually make me think a little bit about some of the conversations that have been happening around like uh, regulating or what do we make of like drones in the mm-hmm. context of warfare? Like another step of automation that's like further removing. Um, Further away from battle, I would say, in right. the way that this game wants to think about I battle. Mean, I mean, I, I assume these discussions have always been happening. I mean, war historians would know better than sure. me, but I mean, it was definitely these debates were happening in World War One, right? When machine guns were deployed, mm-hmm. like the second that it becomes automated, right? To a certain extent, is it is it divorced from the human? Right, 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 right. And I'm sure. I mean, I think you know also more about this than me, but we see sort of patterns in the way people react to technology in. A specific area. We mm-hmm. see recurring themes in what what makes people anxious about new mm-hmm. developments, of which this fits with that. Yeah, and I, I think what I still find interesting about these games is that maybe the lack of a stance is due to the fact that it recognizes that regardless of how war is fought, there are still kind of individuals and people involved. Hmm. And to just dismiss war as bad mm-hmm. or combat as bad, just dismiss really the like, the work and the labor of these people who are fighting for whatever reasons, who knows the circumstances that brought them to be soldiers. Right. And, you know, we can debate forever whether this is an honorable job or... Uh, yeah, sure. Or whatnot. But to still kind of recognize that there is some humanity right. involved regardless. Right. And that their kind of individuality and humanity has been increasingly abstracted from the act that they're asked to do. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, that fits with the all the um, thematic betrayal and everything by command that's in this, right? Mm-hmm. Like Snake finds out he's basically on a suicide mission that he didn't agree to. And there's levels and levels of the removal of how these, uh, I'm going to keep saying warriors. Cause I think that is like kind of how the game wants us to think about them, mm-hmm. how they're being moved around as pawns by, um, for reasons that they're not privy to that they don't get to actively consent to and, and are sort of removed from and don't get to see except, by, you know, breaking through a bunch of um, information walls that they weren't supposed to break through. So, yeah, I I guess that makes sense for me. Um, it just, I, I only bring this up because the game seems to want to talk to you about war so much. Mm-hmm. Like, it wants to tell you what it thinks, and I just am still not sure what it thinks. And it wants to have a stance while also being the most kind of stereotypical action spy movie. right. Which, right. right, there's there's almost the genre kind of keeps getting in the way a little bit of maybe what either Kojima or Konami's stance on, in this case, I think Kojima's stance on war is. Yeah. <laughs> um, because 
And I think that might have to do with his just his love of movies so much and his love of that kind of fiction that he keeps deferring to movies. Right. He keeps right, deferring to the tropes. Right, right. Anytime, at least in this one, and maybe this is just because this is a, still a relatively early game for him that he hasn't necessarily found his voice within the medium yet. Mm hmm. That any time it seems like he's about to make a stance, it's completely undercut because he has to resort to what would happen in a spy movie now or what would happen in an action <laughs> right. movie now. Right. I need these guys to fight shirtless on top of my nuke deployment machine. Yeah. Uh, that ha- That's how it has to end. Right. And so that keeps kind of getting in the way. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. And so it's 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 a mess, but it's a, it's an interesting mess. Yeah. No, I agree with that completely. I mean, it's hard for me to think about this conversation without sort of thinking about how like gender and geopolitics sort of fits into this Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. A, you've already talked about how um, masculinity hooks, a specific vision of masculinity hooks into a lot of these conversations about war. But this game is also obsessed with genetics and with uh, where you come from and who your family is. Literally every character in this game is going to tell us what country they're from, what that means about mm. them, and who their family is, right. even it, if they didn't know them. Yeah, we should clarify that it's obsessed with a very flawed understanding of Oh, genetics. boy. You know how he went out of his way to research how guns work? <laughs> Did not bother <laughs> <laughs> with the geneticists. So apparently, I haven't found this source, uh, this source interview, but I've heard this repeated enough times that it must be that I'd like to think that it's true is that Kojima has kind of retconned this oversight by stating that one of Liquid's greatest flaws is that he doesn't understand genetics. Boy, (laughs) get out of here with that. So anyway, skipping over that because it's such patent garbage. (laughs) Yeah, there's it just it it's wild to me how consistently like the formula for explaining why a character is the way they are is just this is who my family was this is my relationship with them this is the land i come from that is so 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 across the board like snake at one point when he's he's pretty injured calls nastasha and is like just talk to me while he's injured she's like i don't know what you want to talk about he's like tell me about your family like it just it goes there every 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 single character gets there um and it it's it's interesting to me the way the game interlocks genes with destiny. Like destiny is a very strange thing to talk about in the context of this war game where all these people off screen are making choices, people on screen are making choices, people are sort of on their own paths. And then we have all these characters, especially in the back half, who think that their genes are their destiny. And I I, I think that's more than just Kojima not really understanding what genes are. <laughs> <laughs> Although I'm not sure that he does. Okay, so uh, there's another tension here because we just talked about how characters see kind of war as the thing that creates them and as their destiny. So um do you see do you see one of those taking precedent over the other in, in over the course of the game? Are characters defined by kind of the geopolitical circumstances into which they're born or are they defined by their genes? This is the thing. I think those two things are conflated Mm -hmm. in a lot of contexts. I think like there's, I think this game buys into the idea that there's something, there's something inherent in Nastasha because she was, she is Ukrainian and was, uh, grew up around Chernobyl and her parents were impacted by that. Like, I don't, I don't think in the logic of this game, there's any differentiation between those two things. So, I think that's lineage tied tied into genes, tied into tied into everything. 
So then are humans genetically predisposed to go to war? So I think this game thinks they are. Mm. I I mean, I'm, mm-hmm. I don't think that they are, <laughs> yeah. but like, that's not what we're talking about. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think, interestingly, I think this game also says that certain human beings are, and for certain human beings, it's avoidable. I don't think this game thinks that Meryl was genetically destined to go to war. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's kind of expressed by how many characters are trying to keep her out of it. In fact, she sort of Mm -hmm. becomes a soldier against uh, Colonel Campbell's wishes. She's tags along with Snake against his wishes in the beginning. And he's sort of trying to say, like, I can see it in your eyes. You're a newbie and the wiggle in your walk, which like also gross (laughs) that like, get Mm -hmm. out of here. He he sort of does the like, you don't need to be the way I am. You can like leave now and not do this, which isn't how Sniper Wolf is right. presented, right? Sniper Wolf is a creature of war, of battle, of killing, like, to the core. Um, I don't know. I, I, There's something also with, like, the genome soldiers and the, the genetic engineering of, um, with Big Boss and, like, the, the clones and the snakes. And <laughs> it's like, <laughs> if you haven't played this game, this conversation sounds insane. Um, <laughs> But yeah, one so, of the- sorry, if we can just so before we delve into this, if we can just get back to this like as a kind of plot point narrative. Yeah. Um, were you surprised at all to kind of learn about the relationship between Liquid and Solid Snake and their relationship to Big Boss? Did you think that's kind of an interesting twist that they're kind of both clones of Big Boss? No. No, yeah. Okay, so here's <laughs> honestly, here's the thing. Like a lot of the time, a thing that never almost never works on me in any kind of fiction, and you can testify to this, is like Surprise, you're related. I feel nothing about that. Like, what does that mean? What am I supposed to take from that? I I mean, I think it's not so much that they're related. It's that they're both and that Snake is a clone of Big Boss. I think that's really what the twist is. It's it's not that they're kind of like actually twins, like genetically twins. Yeah, I I guess. I mean, so maybe complicating this for me is like, I've never met Big Boss. Like I yeah, like, never met the guy. I don't know him. Right. I I mean, I, like, I know that that is a name and a character that has weight in this series, but it, that means nothing to me. Also, can, can I, characters it only have weight to you if you've met the character? No, no, no. I don't think that's the case, but I think also like I, so I guess part of the shock is that he's a clone period, right? Mm-hmm. That he doesn't that, yeah. like just have a mom and a dad somewhere, I guess. Um, I don't know. This is again, back to that thing of like, in this world, are people's origins determinative, right? And I think in media generally, I find that sort of thing unpersuasive. Like, I'm, even if you are a clone, it's like, well, what have you done since then? Lots of stuff. Like, you still are a person today. I I, I never really know how to take, like, what am I supposed to conclude from that? That he's less human? That he's a freak experiment? That he shouldn't exist? Like, what's what what am I meant to what am I meant to understand about that? I think just that they were um, created to replicate Big Boss. Yeah. And see, yeah, <laughs> just like nothing. Like I t- <laughs> nothing. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's fair. And maybe maybe that'll resonate more if you play more of the series moving forward. Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, I think that's yeah. definitely possible. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there is something though about this game though. That uh, genetics seem to be determinate, but it doesn't. It I don't think it falls so strongly on one side or the other of like nature nurture debate, because like as you said, the characters who aren't kind of genetically predisposed to war, though, though maybe they are. Because so I'm thinking about Otacon now. Okay. And 
he's somebody, I guess, through his dad, maybe, is genetically predisposed to war. Okay. Because his dad worked on the Manhattan Project. Yep. But the game also suggests that, separate from your genes, culturally, you're so predisposed to war because of all these images you see, right? So Otacon and even Meryl, right, have kind of these ideas of what war or battle is that have been glorified through mass media. Through the movies that this very game is citing as. <laughs> exactly, right? Yeah. So kind of all paths lead there. Yeah. Um, and it is a bit of a chicken and egg situation that's not fully resolved. Mm-hmm. But I do think that the argument is a bit more nuanced than just our genes determine who we are. That there is kind of an element, perhaps, of context. Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. It's probably telling that the the biggest like genes are our destiny argument is advanced by the villain which is liquid snake like liquid snake's whole motivating thing is like i got the lesser genes and therefore i'm destined to be trash <laughs> like basically <laughs> which is wild also a hundred percent not how genes work like that whole thing that sequence was a little hard to buy into but but never mind that i guess like one of the one of the things that had me like rubbing my temples and being like, what is happening? Was uh, them when Liquid discloses how they came to be and how all the genome soldiers came to be. So along with all this cloning, he he starts talking about uh, the super baby method yes, of reproduction. The, the sequel to the NES's baby method. <laughs> <laughs> and the, uh, the blueprint for Death Stranding. <laughs> This is that's not a joke. I think Michelle is serious about this. I kind of think so. <laughs> we still don't really know what the deal is with those babies in Death Stranding. Yeah. Um, but Michelle is convinced that it's something to do with the super baby method. Okay, listen, listen. Because also we have the analog versus the digital super which, baby method. Which makes no sense. And I I I've been looking it up. I think those are just Kojima terms. I don't know if they're mistranslations, but I don't think those are terms that geneticists ever use. Really? You had to look that up? I was like, maybe they talk about these things. The super I don't, baby method. No, not the super baby method. Analog versus digital cloning. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> I was like, I guarantee they do not. Super baby method, I could I could guess that that is a Kojima-ism. So the super baby method is basically that you put uh, multiple embryos in the same, I guess, uterus, and they will eat each other until one or two emerge <laughs> triumphant, the strongest ones. The super and babies. Like, the super will. babies. Um and the thing that is interesting to me is like this game has brothers and fathers only. Like for a game that again has all this fixation on genetics and everything, there's there's no there aren't mothers in this. Even like the female characters only really talk about brothers. Like women are completely absent from this. The the way they describe the super baby method, I actually went and pulled this from the script. It says they fertilized an egg with one of the father's cells and then let it divide into eight clone babies. Then they transferred the clones to someone's uterus and later intentionally aborted six of the fetuses to encourage strong fetal growth. Like in that passage where to someone's uterus, who knows whose it was? <laughs> like anyone's could have been any uterus. Like they they fertilize an egg that is just out there. Like I don't know. It's just it's so interesting to me that like the the idea of there being women or mothers in this process is completely removed. Like this is a completely masculine way of reproducing. And even like uterus is sort of divorced from where would we find uteruses often, although not always. And uh, I guess like my generous interpretation of this is like maybe there's some argument in here that like this world of reproduction without women is like part of what makes it so 
cold and so driven by the specific sort of aggressive type of masculinity. That's like also pretty weirdly gender essentialist. And like what I really think is just that Kojima has masculinity issues. (laughs) And I mean, I don't know how to describe sexuality in this game, except to call it pathetic horniness. (laughs) It's so unappealing and corny at every turn. And like, I get that some of this is because a lot of it is borrowed from those action movies and stuff like that. But like Snake on meeting Mei Ling immediately like calls her cute. Uh, Naomi in the very first conversation offers to let Snake strip search her. Meryl's practically in love with him before the game even starts. Everyone wants to sleep with Snake. Meanwhile, Snake looks like a freaking Ben Stiller character. You thought he looked like Zoolander. (laughs) He looks like Zoolander when he's wearing that headband. He shows no kindness to anyone for the first third of the game. Like it just, the the whole fixation on Meryl's wiggle and like the panty shots and like the, right, right up through to the shirtless fist fight with Liquid Snake. Like this, this whole game thinks about bodies and how we relate to each other's bodies in like kind of weird and, and alienated and like gross terms like i don't know what to, i don't know what to do with this except to be like it's gross and it's like all over it's all over this game um so i don't know what to do with with uh kojima and and gender and genetics i want to engage with this but I, we god you have to play metal gear solid 3 okay we have to get there at some point okay so we can kind of revisit this with with a bit more um understanding where the series goes okay whether or not you like where it goes is up in the air. Okay. But I think there'll be some kind of... A response. Yeah, there'll be a response. There's some definite attempts to address these issues. Okay. I mean, that's it. So I will say, I mean, we've been talking some about a lot of the... Like, okay, on some level, the fact that we're able to have, like, the last conversation that we've had about, like, what's this game's relationship with weapons and, and genetics and all this stuff is sort of a sign that there's, like, enough big good stuff going on with this game that it's worth engaging with this game at all on this level, Mm -hmm. right? So like, I want to reiterate that I like this game. And I do think that I probably like it enough to try other ones. Maybe not like tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) But um, but yeah, I'm certainly not like closed off from the possibility. And I'm and I'm curious about what this game would evolve into over time. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so you're interested in the in the series, you're interested in uh, more Hideo games? If we must. <laughs> must. I'm interested in Death Stranding for sure. And probably the best two other Metal Gear Solid games. Do I have to play them all? Or can I bounce around? You can probably bounce around. We'll discuss it. Okay, great. <laughs> we'll have a we'll have a side conversation about this. Okay. And maybe to end on a on a bit of a lighthearted note, as I was doing research um for this game, I did come across this article. By uh, Nikki Douglas, who had this uh, girl gamer website called The Girl Gamer, Mm -hmm. G-R-R-L. It was the 90s. It's fine. Yeah. And um, who's uh, feeling something about Solid Snake? And uh, there's this uh, this article called um, Solid or Liquid, He's All Snake. Ew. I think you've had to deal enough with this game kind of fetishizing women and... um, (laughs) being uh how did you how did you what did you call Path- it pathetically horny pathetic horniness so maybe um if you're into it we can read some of this for another kind of horniness oh boy <laughs> all right 
So you think Lara Croft is the only video game character who makes the public a little weak in the knees? Well, then you're probably a guy. And although you may have played the new Konami thriller adventure Metal Gear Solid... Also, there are no gay men in this world. Odds are you didn't pay much attention to the fact that Stealth Assassin's Solid Snake is a total hottie. But here's the newsflash. Plenty of girls are paying attention, and the fervor is starting to get pretty intense. The girls I talked to about Solid Snake were a little sheepish at first about owning up to the fact that not only does Snakey Boy sound like another famous snake, Kurt Russell, but he's also tremendously flirty with his coworkers. And has some pretty sleek moves. This is before me too. Especially when his back is up to the wall. Snake is sexy, smoky, arty, and definitely tortured. Arty? The perfect... <laughs> Maybe she's looking at a drawing. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. The perfect killer for hire and the kind of bad boy character for a girl gamer to get down on. It's about time too for women to finally have a game sex symbol <laughs> of our own. Unlike Duke Nukem, Solid Snake has this raw, down and dirty way of speaking. The kind of voice a girl can listen to and just drift on. I can't deny that I just kept waiting for pauses in the action so Snake could get a call in his ear and say, what? (laughs) Just the way he would say it. Luscious. The most erotic of things to say. (laughs) What? (laughs) Uh, Okay, that's good. You know what? Good for her. (laughs) It It was probably tough out there in that era. Like... It she's making was. it. She's making it happen. You gotta take what you can get in the in the world of gaming in 1998. Listen, I respect my forebears. If that girl's <laughs> out there, you're doing a great job. <laughs> I don't agree, but you're doing a great job. Uh, okay, let's uh, let's close in by uh, looking at these predictions. I really need to start making these harder. You did incredibly well. Oh yeah. You did maybe too well. <laughs> so I asked, do you think there'll be a love plot? I said yes. You said yes debatable yeah i mean i think the game thinks there's a love plot <laughs> okay so we'll, so we'll, we'll give you that um i asked what do you think metal gear refers to I said a big mech you said a big mech you kind of cheated because you did see it in the trailer it didn't oh, yeah. say that it was a metal gear but it implanted the idea that there's this huge mech you know what's weird in the in game they say it metal gear which makes sense but <laughs> the way everyone says it is like metal gear it's weird <laughs> i named five characters and asked you which one is fake you didn't fall for my trick. I thought you'd fall for Bruce Arnold because you'd be like, oh, Kojima's <laughs> obsessed with 80s action movies. So like a, a combination of Bruce Willis and Arnold Schwarzenegger, that would be what he'd call somebody. Mm-hmm. I overthought that one. Yep. You'd, you didn't fall for it. Um, you predict, I asked you to predict one major plot point. You said that Snake kills someone close to him. So I, almost. I would argue I got I got this wrong. So he, he almost kills the, Grey Wolf. Yeah, he almost kills Grey Wolf. And tries to. And he won't and let I you pull tried the- to. You know I was pulling that trigger like, shoot him, shoot him. But he's just like, oh, no, I can't. And and it won't let you blow him up. <laughs> Even though he gets killed anyway. He gets got regardless. And then I asked you how many times you would unconsciously make the jerk off motion. I said three. I did it once. Only once. And it was at Hideo. Yep. No regrets. <laughs> when Hideo came on instead of video. <laughs> It's too much, man. <laughs> it was too much for Michelle. Uh, and so now maybe we turn it over to you for your score, which I'm sure will make as much sense as ever. Okay. So for letting me shoot down a helicopter, plus 15 points. For the catchy death screens, plus 10. For a sniper battle that actually feels tactile, plus 6. 
for the characters politely not acknowledging Otacon's piss smell plus two, for the persistent gross and corny workplace sexual harassment minus 10, for the melodramatic death monologues plus 15, for their length minus two, for Sniper Wolf's sad, lonely death in the snow plus 10, for loving and respecting dogs plus five, for having the most unique boss fights in town plus 30, for telling me to trust my instincts as a gamer minus three, for reading us the Wikipedia entry on nuclear proliferation, plus five and minus three. For not bothering with the Wikipedia entry on genetics, minus two. For that stairwell sequence and its shitty angles, minus eight. For being goofy as hell, plus 15. For Meryl's wiggle, I have to subtract 20 points. For suddenly a fist fight, minus eight. For making us climb the Metal Gear and feel its size before we fight it, plus 12. And for giving me a remote-controlled missile and multiple excuses to use it, plus eight, for a total of 77 points. Not bad, I guess. Yeah, it's great. I'll, I'll figure this system out one day. It's 77. It's pretty good. <laughs> All right. I think that'll do it for us. Thank you so much for listening. Um, as always, if you are enjoying this show, if you could rate and review us on iTunes or your preferred podcast platform, that would be super, super helpful. You can find us at neverwasagamer.com and on Twitter at neverwasagamer. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. And we hope to see you in two weeks when Michelle gets a break from bounty hunters and mercenaries as she gets shipwrecked on a mysterious island and continues her quest to become a gamer. <laughs> <laughs>